Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Decenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by three guests, uh, a return guest, actually, Erwin Hopster. He is an assistant professor of ethics at Utrecht University. Also, Dr. Julia Erman. She is an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at the University of Twente. And Dr. Ibo van der Poel, a professor in ethics of technology at Delft University of Technology, and they are all editors of the book we're going to talk about today, Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies, an introduction. So welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to have you all on. Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. <laughs> so I, I would like to ask first, perhaps a general question also to introduce the audience to the book. So I see that you you have all uh, many authors here in the book. So tell us a little bit about how the book uh, came together and uh, basically a little bit about the collaborative nature of the book here. Yeah, I, I can tell uh, a little bit about that, uh, uh, Ricardo. So this book is in a joint effort of, of uh, what we call the ESDIT program, as it stands for Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies. This is a uh, very large research program in, in the Netherlands, involving more than five universities, and we have like 60, 70, 80 uh, researchers working on this topic for, for, for 10 years. So this is really a, a big program. Uh, and this book is, in a sense, really uh, a special book in the sense that we wrote it together with many different people uh, from the from the project. In total, I think like thirty five authors are involved in the in the in the various chapters, uh, and we worked in a way that each chapter had one or two lead authors uh, and then uh, contributing uh, authors. Um, well, since we did couldn't put thirty five names on the cover, we have only put only still quite a few uh, uh, the lead authors on the cover, uh, but but we. Yeah, I really like to stress that we really worked with a lot of people uh, uh, on on this book, and it was really uh, nice effort. Yeah. And so to get really into what you explore there, what is the ethics of technology? So, what kinds of questions does it deal with specifically? Yeah. So, so ethics of technology. Yeah, like the name says, it, it deals with ethical questions in 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 technology. Uh, but that that's very broad. So on the one hand, you can think of of quite uh, concrete uh, normative questions about specific technologies. Uh, sh should should we uh, develop new types of deep learning in 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 artificial intelligence? Should we want to have artificial bumps? Uh, one of the technologies being discussed. Should we deploy geoengineering? So so on the one hand, ethics of technology deals with this more specific normative questions about specific technologies. But I think it also deals with more general uh, questions. So you might, for example, think how do we, what type of risks or uncertainties do new technologies bring? Uh, what 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 disruptions do they bring? That's that's of course one of the main, te main themes of the book. Uh, also questions about how do we develop technologies in more responsible ways? Uh, what what methods are there to do uh, to investigate the effects of technology? So there's a broad range ranging from very specific questions about technology to is more conceptual questions, uh, methodological questions. Uh, and in the book, we we delve, deal with this general issue about social and conceptual disruptions of technologies, but we do so by delving into specific technologies. So we try also to combine these perspectives. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that in a second, but 
since uh, you focus specifically on socially disruptive technologies, what are these exactly? And what does disruption mean in this context? Yeah, that, that's a question I could address. Um, I, I think it's in, in, in addressing it, it's always useful to to contrast it with what we think that disruption does not really mean in this context. And namely, that's that's a connotation that is very prominent in discourse on disruption, uh, that disruption is purely something that occurs in the economic sphere. It's often associated with disruptive innovation theory by Clayton Christensen. Uh, basically, the idea that technologies can disrupt markets, whereby uh, other companies and their products become uh, obsolete, right? So, and disruption in this sense is often hailed as a sort of ec economic aspiration, right? Um, and we are after something different, after, after something much more encompassing, I would say, um, namely the disruptive implications of emerging technologies, not only as they play out in market and business, but also in society at large and in various other contexts, right? So think of um, how technologies can disrupt institutions uh, and, and democratic practices, for instance, think of how social media have disrupted the, the political landscape, right? Or think about human capabilities, uh, how neural technologies or, or human enhancement technologies can fundamentally alter what it means to be human, right? Or, or how nature itself can be disrupted by uh, genetic engineering technologies or, um, or, or geoengineering technologies, which aim to, to alter the global carbon cycle, basically, right? And, and so there are many more thoroughgoing and deep senses of disruption, right? Uh, technologies can disrupt our, our theories or moral norms or concepts themselves, right? That's, that's another core theme of the book. We, we will talk about that, I think, mm -hmm. right? So 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 that's that's the idea here, like social disruption and emerging technologies, they play a, a big role in that. And that encompasses much more than what the, the ordinary discourse of disruption is really about. There are many of, of these deep kind of disruptions and, and these are the kinds of disruptions that really interest, uh, interest us here. Uh, actually, I, I would like to hear a little bit more about something specific that you mentioned there, that is disrupting concept. So what is that exactly? What does it mean for uh, technology to disrupt concepts we have about, I, I mean, whatever it might be? Yeah, so um, I guess... The, the kind of concepts and conceptual disruption that is of specific interest here are, are, are the way that technologies can have a sort of implications for concepts that are, are central to our understanding of the world or understanding of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about, to, to take a sort of recent example, think about what the concept of understanding itself means, right? What, what does it mean to understand something? Um, now, that's, that's the, a, a question that has received quite a bit of attention and urgency with the recent rise of large language models such as GPT, which generate texts which convey an, an apparent kind of understanding, right? But that arguably falls short of a real sort of understanding. So we really have to sort of pinpoint what understanding means in the first place in order to uh, say whether GPT can have a sort of understanding or not, right? And something similar holds for creativity, right? Are our generative AI, are they truly creative? Well, that depends on what creativity means, right? And so these, these kind of concepts, we have to sort of rethink their meaning and we are prompted to doing so uh, because of emerging technologies, which have all new kinds of capacities and create situations, which really prompt us to think through these concepts, right? And I, I mean, digital technologies, AI technologies, I mean, that's, that's one kind of example, but 
there are various other technologies here, right? Think about the concept of life, uh, which is challenged by emerging biotechnologies, which may, might be able to generate um, what appear to be living structures in the lab, right? So we have to think what, what life really means, whether these are really living structures or think about the, the concept of reality, which is challenged by uh, virtual reality and augmented reality technologies, right? So that's that's the the what we have in mind when we're speaking about conceptual disruption, how the, the established meaning of concepts is being challenged by new technologies and how uh, these call for a sort of clarification of our concepts and might also call for a future revision of our concepts. Mm -hmm. So just before we get into the technologies you explore in the book, I have one more general question question having to do with the framework, the theoretical, I guess, framework that you bring into the book. Because at a certain point, you mentioned there that you uh, use an intercultural or you apply an intercultural outlook there. So what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I can try to answer that question. So. Um... We explicitly move beyond like an approach that only centers on Western conceptual and value frameworks. That's of course very typical in the tradition of a Western European philosophy, just depart from concepts that have developed in that those regions of the world. But by now there are general movements um, concerned with decolonization, deparochialization, and we basically go with, with those uh, movements and we think that of course we have to accept that there's a plurality of conceptual frameworks value frameworks um, our <laughs> western frameworks are not the only ones we acknowledge that so we do two things on the one hand we refer to non-western experiences and what follows from those experiences about social and conceptual disruption so how do we have to understand that what do we learn about that if we consider those experiences and on the other hand, we also explicitly look at non-Western concepts and conceptual frameworks. So just to give an example, um, we look at the Ubuntu concept of personhood. So Ubuntu is a philosophy or a way of life practiced in many different parts of Africa. And the Ubuntu um, concept of personhood is very different from the Western concept of personhood in that um, personhood here really involves uh, is, as, as constitutive elements, the uh, relations with others. It's interdependent um, notion. And so if you then ask, well, how do, for instance, social robots, who might, how might they in the future disrupt a concept of personal? Then if you take this Ubuntu concept, um, that is quite, quite drastic and differs from the Western concept. Um, because in Ubuntu, you have this famous saying, I am because we are, and since we are, Therefore, I am this, this relatedness and to become fully human, to fully develop your own uh, personhood, which also means moral personhood. You need to have these constant interactions with others and where you have also the concern for the other, for equality, for solidarity. And if you assume that with robots, we cannot have such relationships. But then if in the future, social robots were to replace humans in many cases, then this would be a, a sort of disruption of the concept of personhood that we can not understand if we only take a Western approach. Mm -hmm. But but just to clarify a little bit what you said there, Dr. Erman, uh, I mean, is it that it is important to have this intercultural outlook, not just to understand a little bit better how these socially disruptive technologies might have their disruptive effects across different cultures and societies? Because, of course, since they have different concepts, different cultures and so on, of course, 
we would expect them to have different social effects, I guess. But uh, do you think that perhaps there's, uh, by having this intercultural outlook, there's some insights that we might take from other cultures in terms of how we could deal with these technologies, even in our Western societies or other societies, for example? No, certainly. That is also another aspect that's very important. Jeroen, um, do you want to add something? Or? No. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, so the sort of theoretical angle we're taking really with this focus on concepts, right? That also mm -hmm. prompts us to think like, what are the, the, the concepts that really, that we really need and that we might want to modify or perhaps, right, to, to engineer, so to say, to conceptually engineer the kind of conceptual framework that's very useful for ethical purposes or for purposes of understanding, et cetera, right? And if you start to think about that and think that through, well, then obviously, I mean, I mean, we, the, the three of us at least, are, are very much versed in a sort of Western tradition. But if you're going to think about what might be better concepts, well, we need not be, you know, stuck with that tradition only. We might want to expand our horizons. And I think there's much to be gained from seriously engaging with very different kinds of traditions, which have might have developed very different kinds of concepts. And we might sort of, yeah, surprisingly get on that track by starting with this idea of conceptual disruption. Mm -hmm. What actually, of course, also helps here that these concepts are, of course, not completely like distinct or unrelated. So you have certain developments also in the Western world, for instance, um, approaches like care ethics, virtue ethics. Um, there is a lot of overlap also with Ubuntu, with Confucianism. So there is a starting point. There are some um, already some links and you can take them, but then you can elaborate on that and develop fuller concepts if you take these other traditions and concepts into account. Mm -hmm. So getting into the specific technologies you explore in the book, you go through social media, social robots, climate engineering, and artificial womb. So how did you select the technologies to focus on in the book? And why these technologies specifically? Are there any particular reasons for that? Yeah, I, I can say something uh, about that. So I think there the several kinds of reasons why we selected these. So, so one important reason was that we wanted to have uh, technologies and concepts from different conceptual domains. So in our asset program, we distinguish three main domains in which you might have concepts, namely concepts relating to uh, human nature, uh, which might be concepts like a personhood or, or agency or vulnerability. Uh, so that's one domain. A second domain we look at is the, is the, uh, the social domain. Uh, and uh, uh, that might be concepts, for example, like justice or democracy. Uh, and, and then the third is, is a natural uh, environment, which might have concepts like, like uh, a natural or uh, versus non-natural uh, uh, living uh, versus non-living. Uh, uh, so, so we wanted uh, at least to have one technology from each of these uh, uh, three domains. Um, and other considerations were, of course, where we had expertise in, 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 in the program uh, uh, on. I think the technologies also reflect, I think it's interesting, some technologies are already there for quite a while, like social media, and we can already see what effects they have. Others are very much more proposed uh, and we're still in the dark of what, what they ex exactly are going to do. In, uh, if you think of, about artificial ones, but also, to some extent, geoengineering, it is not really applied yet. So I think that's also a kind of interesting variation between the different technologies that helps to see how do you deal with just disruptive questions for cases in which we do not know yet exactly what is going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, in regards to social media, this is actually something that over the past two or three years I've been exploring a lot on the show, partic- particularly related to misinformation, for example. But in this particular case, I would like to ask you specifically, uh, how do you think social media might impact people's concept of democracy? Yeah, that's a question that I would like to, to answer. So if you start from Abraham Lincoln's um, understanding of democracy as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, then you can see that social media disrupts what the people is, right? So it disrupts the demos and it disrupts, um, crucially, the idea of the public sphere, which is really uh, central for many different conceptions of democracy. So social media um, is now the place where citizens and non-citizens or people in general have political debates, like decide what should be put on the agenda, also gain their information and also a lot of misinformation, as you just said, and form their opinions. Um, And that means that basically the public sphere transcends national boundaries. And of course, to some extent, it has always done that, but now it is much more radical. So citizens and non-citizens, including private companies, NGOs, all participate in this online political debate that shapes like uh, democ- the, the political agenda of a democratic society. So then you can say that there are, we also get a kind of misalignment between the public sphere and who participates in the public sphere, who uses this platform for communicative action and the demos. Because those who are engaging into the debate and also shaping the debate are not identity with those, the people for which the democratic the, the politics are made, right? The government for the people. So we have a, a mismatch here. And another important point is that these social or the companies that own the social media platforms gain a lot of power. So they have a power um, um, within or over the public sphere. And that is something that is seen as very problematic uh, from the perspective of uh, theories of democracy. Not one, like one actor should not have so, so much power about how the, the debate is going there. Mm-hmm. So this is this has a lot to do with the power of certain specific private individuals over politics, uh, a political discourse, democracy, and so on, right? Because, I mean, one thing that came to mind while you were talking, Dr. Erman, is that, um, I, as I said on the show, I've been talking with people who are experts on social media and misinformation, and they all tell me that, for example, when it comes to who... Uh, spreads misinformation on the internet. It's usually a tiny minority of highly politically motivated people. And perhaps those are the ones that in the social media get more attention and shape political discourse. Uh, And also the private companies that own social media, perhaps uh, in terms of how they particularly regulate this course and how much they allow for misinformation to spread their political misinformation in this case, uh, how much they allow for it to spread there or not. These are all things that we should worry about when it comes to, in this particular case, social disruption, right? Yes, exactly. Of course, you might, you might also mention like positive effects of that. Of course, mm-hmm. like anyone basically has the possibility to enter the debate. So that is, of course, something that is nice. Like minority groups um, have a chance here to be heard. Yeah. That's so just to also mention these positive 
effect. Yeah, I think it, it holds for many technologies, right? That there's this sort of double-edged sword. Uh, the technology can be an instrument for empowerment, but also for impression, uh, oppression. So it really depends on whose hands, who gets their hands on it, right? Uh, how, how it gets used. So we should always sort of be mindful of both of these sides, I think. Yeah, of course, that's a question we'll come back to later, but I guess that we've also seen over the years that through Twitter and other social media platforms, sometimes they allow for people to more easily mo mobilize against tyranny and to organize protests and so on. So that's also a positive aspect of it, right? So uh, let's now move on to social robots. So first of all, what is a social robot exactly? Yeah, I can say something uh, about... So a social robot is, is a robot that's designed to socially interact with, with people, mm -hmm. uh, usually based on artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and then you can think of, of, for example, robots that are designed to be companions for people, or robots that are designed to be used in healthcare or, or care at home, or robots are being used in education. You might also think of uh, things like sex robots or re religious robots. Uh, they know, uh, and it's also good to be aware that that in this definition of social robots, it doesn't necessarily need to look like a robot. Or, or so sometimes these social robots are designed uh, sometimes to look like uh, like people. That's called humanoid uh, robots. But for example, also a chatbot, uh, uh, in a sense, is a social robot because it's also designed to socially interact uh, with people. And also in cases of uh, such uh, chatbots, people might get the impression that they're talking to another person rather than to to a machine, so to say. Uh, yeah, so social robot is this broad category. But I think what's in common is that it's all about that there's some form of seemingly social interaction with with the with the social robot yeah mm -hmm. yeah I, actually i was going to comment on that because uh, i mean perhaps people would have this idea that for a robot to be social it has to have some sort of physical form or appearance yeah. but you mentioned chatbots there as well right yeah so so anything that 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 mimics a kind of social interaction so i think there's the mm -hmm. Uh, the, the the famous uh, 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 episode uh, from the secretary of, of Weizenbaum, I don't know, so Weizenbaum designed uh, a program called ELISA, and ELISA uh, just asked people uh, questions, basically giving what they say back as a, as, as, as a, as, as a question. Uh, and now, interestingly, the secretary of Weizenbaum, when she was uh, walking with ELISA, she asked Weizenbaum to leave the room because she felt uh, she needed some privacy in talking to 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 Elisa. Weizenbaum actually was quite upset about this because he believed that Elisa was just a stupid uh, program and had no human features at all. Uh, but his secretary and well, he of course he left he left the room. Uh, so so this clearly shows, I think, that that also if there is no physical appearance, we we still might treat this chatbot, which is actually in this case Elisa, a very simple chatbot as we might ascribe human qualities to it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And actually, I mean, it's not as straightforward the fact that chatbots do not have any physical appearance at all because some of them, you can ask yeah. them to, to send you a picture and they might create a digital uh, 
I don't know, digital physical appearance for them. So that's also there. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, there was in the news not long ago that Meta now uh, tries to create this uh, chatbot based on a kind of chat GDP system, which have different uh, personalities. So I think one of them uh, will be like uh, Paris Hilton. So you, well, so to give you the impression, you're talking to Paris Hilton. So, uh, so, so even there, you see this uh, tendency also by the designers of these systems to give them some kind of personality. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I guess that one of the things concepts that apply here is anthropomorphism. I mean, we have this tendency sometimes to anthropomorphize robots and i mean is it always bad to do that uh no i don't think it is open maybe it's good first to say why people think it is bad in the first place okay yeah. <laughs> so, so so i think the particular some philosophers have made arguments that that, that it is uh you you're actually uh creating an illusion uh so so it is you're you're you're, you're creating something that doesn't really exist and you might say that that is misleading people or or even manipulating people. Uh, now that might be bad in itself. Uh, so if if, if an elderly person is talking to to a companion, it might create. So some people might think that's in itself bad to to create the impression that there's a real person. Uh, but there's also other ways why it might be bad. It might you might trust too much in 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 the role in 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 in. In, in the world. Or some people have also pointed out, if we're going to treat them as if they're persons, we also have obligations to them. And maybe then we treat uh, them, uh, we treat other people less well and the robots better. So there's also these type of co concerns. So so there are all kinds of concerns. But going back to your question, I don't think it is always bad. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly functional and that's of course, so it, it helps to create, so if you want to, robot that helps in healthcare that's really functional can be to have a kind of relation to it um so, so but but i think it should be done with, with some care or, or or not to create too much the impression but but it certainly has all might also have positive things or be 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 innocent so to say uh, uh yeah mm -hmm. and actually when it comes to for example instances where robots might provide some kind of companionship and i'm not talking here about any specific kind i mean it can be any yeah. kind of companionship uh, I, I mean how do you look at it because uh, couldn't it sometimes be at least a little bit uh, positive if for example people are low lonely or something like that even though of course at the same time there might be some deception going on there yeah yeah so i think this this is really a difficult question about people really think differently yeah. so, so, so 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 i think there you're right i mean maybe deception is not always bad and if it makes few people feel better it, it might be might be positive uh where maybe we becomes uh, more negative if it comes at the cost of human attentions for, for other people. So if the robot replaces family contact or, for example, that, that's probably not what you what you want, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I would say. Um, I think some people might be very strict on this and say any deception is not allowed. But I, I think 
Well, what you can say against this is that, of course, uh, in human to human interaction is also a lot of small deception or small lies or white lies or whatever we call it <laughs> that 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 we to some extent find part of normal human interaction. So, given that, you might question whether all deception is bad or equally uh, bad. Uh, yeah. But just to add, so in some contexts, there's, of course, also a shortage of humans, right? For instance, in elderly care. So here you yeah. might wonder to what extent then, I mean, you might really only have the choice between people just being lonely and things not to be done and certain interactions not to be taking place or perhaps having them done by a robot. So, of course, you have the whole topic about this deception, but um, in, in contexts where there is a great shortage of humans, it's not so easy to have enough humans, like human caregivers involved, then robots might be able to fulfill a role that can contribute to the well-being of elderly people. Mm -hmm. And I guess that another important thing to consider here is what about how we treat the robots themselves? Should we treat them as moral patients or not? Yeah, well, I think to some extent we do. So, well, take just simple intuitions. If if we kick a human or a robot, mo most people would be upset. Um, and if we kick, say, uh, another object, well, if we kick a football, nobody would. Uh, but maybe if we kick a car, it would. Feel... So, but it's interesting that these intuitions are different. So, which suggests that that to some extent they might be something like more patience or at least objects of moral concern. Uh, I think here, here the conceptual engineering, interestingly, <laughs> uh, starts. Uh, are we talking about them as patients, which seems to suggest that there's somehow a kind of persons that deserve more attention, or are we talking about as objects of moral concern, but that maybe sounds too objective because they seem to be more than just an object. Um, so, so here, I think the conceptual engineering really becomes. So I think it is clear that we have some more obligations to them, but I think uh, uh, the way we conceptualize these more obligations and the language we use to describe these more obligations is really pertinent within the sense <laughs> what whole, all, our whole book and uh, research program is about. What are the, because if we use other terms, it has all types of implications that might go further than just the obligations to this. Yeah, for example, if we, uh, well, we can see them as patients, but maybe then also agents. Uh, and then you have these further discussions. Suppose they really like a kind of persons. W what role do they then have in our societies? Uh, maybe just to go extreme, but some people have even suggested it. Should they have voting rights, for example, uh, if if they <laughs> if they more uh, uh, agents? Uh, so. Uh, uh, yeah, this is going bit beyond what you asked, but 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 I think these words that we use, uh, like more agents, patients, or object of more concern, they they really matter uh, uh, a lot here. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the sort of moral obligations that we might have toward uh, social robots, is does it have anything to do with perhaps some? potential mental properties that they might have or develop? Because sometimes people talk a lot about the possibility of somewhere in the future, for example, AI systems developing 
consciousness or something like that. I mean, is that necessary to be there, some sort of mental, actual mental properties or not, when it comes to how we treat social robots? Perhaps I can say something about that. Um, so there are actually okay. different lines of argument. So one would indeed be that they have to have certain properties of certain mental like features, but mm -hmm. others would say it's enough if they appear to have them. So that that's the most mm -hmm. important thing. Do we like experience them as like as the way where human had these same capacities? And still another line of reasoning, which is also more Kantian, would be that what matters is how that affects how we treat humans. So you might say mm -hmm. that if we mistreat or kick a humanoid robot, then this might have negative effects for how we would treat other humans. So there are different lines of reasoning. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case that they are, can really develop all these features and it would really be human-like. Mm -hmm. Actually, that Kantian line of reasoning is very interesting because it's brought to the table in several different instances. So, for example, when it comes to uh, sex robots, sometimes there are feminist lines of argumentation where people say that, uh, so, for example, someone might say, oh, th there's nothing wrong there. It's just a robot and people buy it and use it sexually and so on. And, and But then some feminists claim, oh, but there's something problematic about it because then men, for example, uh, might objectify women even more. And then that would translate into actual sexual treatment or behavior with the uh, human humans right yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, and by the way since we were talking about humans earlier we discussed a little bit anthropomorphism so what is really unique about humans because i guess that's something that uh, that's a question that's also raised here right yeah, yeah, certainly. And of course, I mean, it's a bit like the one million dollar question, <laughs> I would say, because this is something there's a lot of debate about. But but certainly uh, the kind of typical answers are things like saying, well, it's typical for humans that they have intentionality or that they have a mind or a soul, uh, emotions, a consciousness. So these are the kind of typical uh, 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 answers. Uh, one of the things that I really found interesting with is the development of artificial intelligence. We also found out that, yeah, we actually often do not really know what these answers exactly mean. So what do we exactly mean with conscience? What do we exactly mean with intentionality? Of course, there's a lot of philosophical theories about these things and they give uh, uh, answers, but, but yeah, they're still very hard questions. But it, these are typical the kinds of answers we, we would give to what is unique uh, uh, to, to humans. And I think there's also the idea that uh, whatever that exactly is, it is important to preserve these things that are unique uh, 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 to humans. So, and I think part of the debate about social robots is, is where people, I think though people don't disagree on that we want to keep what's unique to humans, but they might disagree about what is unique to humans and to what extent social robots might endanger uh, uh, eroding what is unique uh, to, to, uh, 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 to humans. So I think there is mainly where the debate often is uh, uh, about. Mm -hmm. So let's get into 
a little bit into climate engineering here. So first of all, what is it? Yeah, that's 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 a different topic, right? Um, so the, the standard definition of, of climate engineering, which is often cited by the Royal Society, is as follows. Uh, that climate, enge climate engineering is the deliberate or intentional large-scale intervention in the Earth's climate system in order to moderate global warming, right? So that's the general idea. And then there are two very different ways in which that can go about. Basically, uh, the first one is carbon dioxide removal. That's a set of techniques um, that serve to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, right? So basically, you can think of this as sort of altering the global carbon cycle with the aim of diminishing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? And since carbon dioxide is the main greenhouse gas, uh, this addresses the root cause of climate change, so to say. And then the other set of techniques that's called solar, solar radiation management, and these are techniques to um, affect planetary reflection levels, for instance, by blocking incoming sunlight, right? So here, the, 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 the carbon cycle remains unaffected, right? But incoming sunlight, that's also one of the other main variables that regulates the climate, right? So that could also be used to address uh, global warming, right? Um, so I think it's it's important to, to clearly distinguish between these two sets of te techniques because they're very different. They also have different sort of risk profiles or ethical profiles, right? Uh, you, you could say that solar radiation management techniques, these are definitely the more controversial and contested ones, whereas the need for some degree of carbon dioxide, dioxide removal, that's increasingly uh, accepted. Um, um, and there are also there, there are sets of there, there are general techniques. They're, they encompass various technologies, right? So uh, carbon dioxide removal, well, that might involve simply planting a forest, what's called afforestation, right? That's one sort of carbon dioxide removal technique, right? But it might also be more high, high, high tech, uh, such as uh, direct air capture, which basically means filtering carbon dioxide directly from the air and, and the, subsequently storing it underground, right? And the same holds for solar radiation management. There are various technologies that could be employed uh, under that header. Yeah. Uh, so here we're talking about technologies that would uh, all potentially be used to tackle climate change, right? Or, or, or are there other also other kinds of climate engineering technologies that are not directly tied to tackling uh, climate change? No, I guess that's that's the main aim in which they are nowadays uh, conceived. I mean, there's a bit of a history. I mean, there's a bit of a history of, let's say, weather change technologies that only already existed midway the 20th century, right? Which had less to do with climate change in the in the in the sense of global warming as we currently understand it, uh, right? So, so ideas about changing the weather, changing the climate, changing atmospheric patterns, they have been around and they have a bit of a prehistory. But as it's currently nowadays uh, uh, discussed, it's it's all about climate change, yeah. But what are perhaps the main kinds of ethical questions that these technologies raise? Because, I mean, just uh, at first sight, it would seem that if they work when it comes to tackling climate change, then there shouldn't be anything controversial about them. Yeah, fair enough, uh, right? Um, so so there, 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 there are various ethical concerns, right? They occur at different stages of developing and, and implementing the technologies. And you could give like a sort of long, long-winded overview of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I can sort of highlight what I think of are some of the key issues, right? 
And, and they are somewhat distinct, as I already mentioned, for solar radiation management on the one hand and carbon dioxide uh, removal technologies on the other, right? So it's arguably, it's even sort of misleading to always classify them together as uh, climate or geoengineering technologies because they have such different profiles, right? But so starting with some of the main concerns, so when it comes to solar radiation management uh, technologies, well, I guess one of the main concerns is there that it's, that it's not really... Uh, you could say it's insufficiently disruptive in the sense that it's not really providing the kind of uh, uh, means for sustainability transformation that seems to be needed nowadays, right? Because it's not addressing the root cause of climate change, namely uh, greenhouse gases, right? It's only blocking sunlight. That's that's the most feasible way of going about it, right? Um, and therefore, it's it's often seen as a sort of way to, you know, as a, as a sort of emergency mechanism in order to make things not even worse in the worst case scenario let's say but it's not really solving the problem right because the carbon the amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere they would continue to increase if we would only rely on this technology so for instance if we would ever stop relying on that technology then all of a sudden there would be a massive amount of of sudden global warming with well difficult to anticipate consequences but they probably won't be pretty right and another sort of major issue when it comes to solar radiation management is there's not really a, a sort of a kind of global governance system in place to regulate things and to ensure that things will go out, go, go about in, in a proper manner, right? So who will prevent some sort of uh, single, very rich individual who thinks that something has to be done about climate change uh, to go and, and sprinkle uh, aerosols in the atmosphere? thereby blocking incoming sunlight, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that might occur, um, but we probably wouldn't want that to occur if it's if it happens just because of the actions or the decisions of a single individual, right? We want to have a sort of a right, you know, a global uh, uh, deliberation system institution in place in order to make informed decisions about that. That kind of functioning institution at the moment is, is not really there, right? And given that it is a global problem, it's very difficult, right? To sort of uh, address it and to have the the, the proper sort of checks in place uh, to actually realize the technology, right? and then let me so if if I can if I have time to to follow up on on carbon dioxide removal, right? So that raises also various ethical issues. Part part of them also have to do with global governance, but I guess the main issue there is that um, the amount of carbon dioxide removal that seems to be seem to be needed, given to 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 reach sort of the net zero goals that are that are specified around 2050 in 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 most parts of the world nowadays, I mean that requires vast amounts of resource use to implement all the kind of carbon all the all the, all the carbon dioxide removal uh, technologies to realize that these zero net zero ambitions, right? So vast amount of land fast amount of crops, fast amount of water use, right? And I mean, where are we gonna find this land? Well, I mean, most likely it will be somewhere in, in the global South, let's say in parts of the world that are already most adversely affected by global warming. So again, the decision-making of how that should go about, uh, I mean, that's not the, the, the right kind of institutions are not really in place there. And there's this risk that the, those who are already most negatively affected or the most vulnerable countries will take the biggest blast here as well, right? Um, and then another sort of interesting feature of carbon dioxide removal is that the kinds of companies who are best placed to actually realize this carbon dioxide removal, 
they tend to be the, the kind of companies who have benefited from the fossil fuel industry, right? Like oil and gas companies who actually have the sort of facilities or, or the technological infrastructure in place in order to remove carbon dioxide and store it somewhere underneath the sea, let's say, right? And you might think that, well, that, that might create the kinds of incentives that we don't really want to create. So if the energy transition or the climate transition relies on fossil fuel industries as a sort of key partner to, to make that happen, well, they might also have an incentive to sort of keep their uh, the fossil, fossil fuel economy going for a bit longer, et cetera, right? So that makes it also a very sort of tricky, um, yeah, tricky technology. So I guess the bottom line to take here is that carbon dioxide removal, we definitely need it, but we can't, you know, single-handedly rely on it. We also need mitigation uh, measures. That's, that I think that's very clear. Mm -hmm. I think you've touched on this point slightly earlier, Dr. Robster, but j just to make it clear, I guess that at least to a certain extent, the ethical consideration zero would also tie with uh, some uh, critics that people bring to the table when they say that what we really need is uh, systemic change, systemic solutions, and not just these sort of techno-solutionist ways of tackling climate change and we would need to change how our economy works our activities industrial activities our energy sources and so on and some of our of course individual habits but uh, just trying to come up with or waiting for new technologies to develop to tackle climate change and then uh, leave it all as it is in terms of our economic system and all of that is not good enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there seems to be this risk of, of having a techno fix, right? Technology will save today and we can basically go on the same way uh, with, yeah. you know, but because of technological innovation, everything will be okay, right? And I think that, that that is a sort of, you know, a human mindset that is very, you know, we have a sort of proclivity to think in that kind of way. Or at least a tendency that seems to be very present in society, and uh, yeah, that's that's tricky because I mean there are very good reasons to think that a techno fix will not save the day, right? We need technology; it's a very important sort of ingredient of the overall transition we need to make. But we can't single-handedly rely on it, right? And if we if we sort of you know only focus our attention to these techno fixes, uh, we might because there are so many uncertainties about how the technologies themselves will evolve how, you know, what will actually be involved in their implementation. Um, if we only rely on that, we might encounter some unpleasant surprises. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the last piece of technology that you explore in the book, that is ectogestative technology. So Dr. Ehrman, could you tell us a little bit about what this kind of technology is really about? Yeah, so that is a technology that enables um, ectogestation. That means development of a mammal, doesn't necessarily have to be a human being, but only be another mammal, outside of a yeah, female body. Normally this development happens inside, but this technology would enable it outside. It's very important to distinguish between two forms of ectogestation that should not be conflated, partial ectogestation and full ectogestation. So partial, as the name says, means that only part of this process, the development of a human or another mammal, would happen outside. Um, and full is really the idea, and that's much more futuristic, you might say, a scenario more future, that the whole process of the development, embryo and, and fetal development, would happen in a, in a machine. 
So what's being developed in different parts of the world at the moment, amongst others here in the Netherlands at the University of Eindhoven, is a device intended to be used for partial electrocystation, so to replace incubators in neonatal intensive care units. That is really a specific problem that is supposed to tackle, namely the death of extremely premature born infants. Um, and full electrocystation is something that is more speculative, but um, that especially many philosophers, artists, designers have already been thinking about. And the two really have different social and conceptual implications. And what would be some of those conceptual implications that the two of them have? Yeah, so for instance, if you consider partial electrogestation, you can think of the concept of birth. The question would arise, when would a baby be born? Would that be at the moment where it is transferred into the device, so leaving the maternal womb and going into the artificial womb? Or would that be only when it finally comes out of this artificial womb? And then it's really like, you might say that is really born, but then what does birth mean? And if you look at it, you can see that there are two elements of, as we normally understand birth. We can say that one is birth as location change and the other is birth as physiology change. So when you imagine that a, a, a fetus is, transferred into an ectogestative device, then there is what's happening is, um, is birth by location change. But physiology doesn't really change because of course this device mimics the natural environment of the maternal womb. And there are also terms used like artificial placenta, artificial amniotic fluid. So the lungs, for instance, of the fetus wouldn't, don't have to work. It, it doesn't have to breathe. Whereas if it then really comes into an incubator, for instance, or if it really then born entirely, then the lungs have to work. It has to breathe independently. And there are other physiological changes. So this, the concept of birth, you'd say, is affected, is disrupted. And another concept here, interesting, is the concept of body. Because yeah. you, you can ask the question whether this machine, this artificial womb, is really separate from the human body, or is it perhaps an extension of the body? Especially if you think of a fetus that is inside like a woman's womb as being a part of, of her and not just something that is contained, a separate entity contained, that's a so-called parthood model of pregnancy. And then you might wonder what is actually then the relationship of this um, fetus to the machine it is in and how does that relate to the, yeah, to the mother's body? Especially, that is especially what questions that arise when you think of partial electrogestation, where first a fetus develops in a female body, in a female womb, and then it is transferred into a device. And do you yeah. want me to continue? Uh, yeah, no, with... Let me just ask you one question about yeah. that last bit that you mentioned about the yes. body, because this connects yeah. to the sort of metaphysics of pregnancy, right? Exactly. Where, yes. When yes. people ask if uh, while a particular woman is pregnant, if the fetus is a part of her or not, if it's just one single entity or two different entities, and sometimes even that's brought to the table in discussions surrounding abortion yes. and stuff like that, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. and, that's very, it raises very interesting questions then if you think of ectogestation, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what about the notion of a parent? Is it also, or might it also be disrupted here? Yeah, and here I think this becomes particularly relevant if we imagine full electrogestation. Because then we actually imagine a situation 
where a baby um, doesn't have a gestational mother in the sense. So it doesn't have to gestate within a female body. Um, so yeah, there would still be genetic mothers, still be social mothers, but no gestational mother. And then you might finally wonder whether we need the concept of mother and also the concept of father anymore, because we can ask what are here the crucial differences actually. So you might conclude that we should just talk about parents. Everyone is equal. So there's nothing that makes the mother specific if the yeah, fetus has not somehow been within the mother's body. Because the idea, I mean, in, in, in current parenting practices, of course, very often, at least in many societies, mothers still are seen as the primary caregivers. And if you go more into that and, 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 and see also the history of that and, and how that is justified, then it seems that the fact that it is the mother who carries the baby for nine months, that this really plays a very important role. And it seems also many think that uh, once a baby is born, it's the mother who can calm it down best because it knows the mother's heartbeat, et cetera, et cetera. But if you then imagine this extra gestation, then you could think about a scenario where it's possible for both fathers and mothers or parents more generally to somehow connect to the device so that the fetus in the device can sort of feel or hear the heartbeat, its voice. You can imagine that it will all become much more equal, less, uh, less distinctions, and then... What is the difference? Why should we talk of mothers? Why should we talk about fathers? Why not just talk about parents? So this might also tie to a certain extent to gender roles, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This might in a very like positive future scenario where we also definitely have to abstract from all the negative implications that this technology might have. You might see, yeah, it would be um, more like, yeah, equal um roles and more equal division of care tasks and the whole like the concept of gender also might really be disrupted mm -hmm. yeah i was also it just came to my mind i don't know if this exactly would apply here or not but since we now know from anthropology that we are mostly particularly still in traditional societies cooperative breeders that is it's not just the mother or even the mother and the father raising the child but it's basically many other people related to them in some way i mean I, I was imagining if in this case it could completely disrupt the notion of parent and i mean we would uh, perhaps get into a cultural context where uh, who your parents are doesn't even matter much. It's just if you're properly raised by someone, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in this respect, you can also think of the notion of multi-parenting that some yeah. people are advocating, although in the uh, in the face of overpopulation, so that groups of people that could be friends, that could be neighbors, would yeah. raise children together. That, of course, raises ethical issues like then would anyone feel responsible, like sufficiently responsible if this is divided among so many people? But we already have it in many like more communal societies and indeed like a whole village basically seems to raise a child and there's much less of an emphasis on a single person like the mother or the mother and the father. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's interesting that because it's, it's sort of easy to conceive of this as a sort of emancipatory technology, right? Uh, uh, that the, the gender roles don't matter anymore. But for instance, one of the implications might also be a full exogenesis that as, as a woman, you are no longer physically in control over what happens to your baby that might really be detached, right? So for instance, there might be uh, an institution saying, well, 
you're not allowed to have an abortion, right? And as a woman, basically, you can't do anything about it because you're not physically in touch with the actual baby in your body, right? So there might be these sort of less lesser foreseen kind of implications that this technology might also have. So that's, that's one of the reasons why it's really important to think this through uh, in all the, the, the possible kinds of implications before we actually embark on this track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into some uh, more general questions here. So uh, if some of these technologies really socially disrupt human societies, who, who should be held responsible if that social disruption is negative in some way? I mean, should it be the companies that develop them, the engineers who create them, the users, the governments? Who exactly? Yeah, let me try to say something on that. Okay. What a difficult question. Uh, so, 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 so I think two questions. So, first question is maybe: uh, Is it always possible to 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 hold someone responsible? Uh, typically, you can only be responsible if something you could really be have foreseen it, really we have expected it. Uh, and to be honest, I think there are some social disruptions that might, if we look back also on the past, that maybe we couldn't have foreseen, and it might be just sometimes be improper to hold people uh, responsible. But having said that, of course, there are instances in which things have been foreseen. And like we just discussed with the artificial one, we also have a kind of ethical obligation to try to foresee things and to act on what we can uh, 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 foresee. Um, And then it might also be proper to to hold people uh, responsible for for, for the bad uh, 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 consequences. And I think it depends a bit on the type of bad consequences, whether this is most probably... Um, it could be the engineers involved, but I think often it will be more proper to hold uh, the companies developing these technologies responsible because the engineers do not decide on their own. It doesn't mean that they don't have a responsibility, but, but they're certainly not the only ones responsible. Governments are also uh, responsible. So, so, so I think it is really a kind of different uh, actors that should be held responsible. Uh, and I think it is also, and it comes maybe also from a previous discussion, it's not about holding responsible when something goes wrong. I think it is also what some people call uh, forward-looking responsibility. Namely, if we develop these technologies, we should try to to think beforehand about what they might do, not pretending that we can know everything, but that we can do better than just developing them and then see what happens, so to say. <laughs> I think, in a sense, the whole lot of ethics of technology is about that and a lot of what we're doing and the conversation we were having just about the artificial realm is also very much about that because by thinking through what these technologies might disrupt we might make other technological choices or and maybe there's sometimes even reason for government policies uh, maybe even forbidding some technologies i mean i'm not saying that that should be the general response but sometimes that might be a proper response mm-hmm. And actually, something that you mentioned there, I think, is very interesting because we have to, when it comes to holding people responsible or uh, responsibility in general, we have to keep in mind that perhaps uh, there are many things that will be a consequence of adopting certain types of technology that we can't really foresee, right? I mean, for example, we talked about social media here, and I I wouldn't uh, say we should hold the people who developed the internet initially for any of the th- the problems we're going through right now through social media, right? Yeah, 
No, I, I completely. And, and this is why I think often more, say, the forward looking, or also, I mean, once we find out these consequences, we have new responsibilities. I think that's also important if you take the social media case. So I think it is not productive to say the developers of, of the internet are responsible or even maybe not even the first social media companies. But now that we know that there are these effects, we have, uh, and we is also the developers and the engineers and companies developing, but all the governments, we have responsibilities that we in a sense didn't have before. And it is important to act on these responsibilities, uh, mm -hmm. I would say. And so uh, another kind of question that I have here is when it comes to technology and how people use it and the sort of consequences that it might have for society or individuals, I mean, there are two different kinds of ways, I think, or two main ways that people look at it. There are people that argue for technology being mostly neutral, and it's the way that humans use it that might be, in certain cases, problematic. But then, on the other hand, there are people that say that, no, uh, at least sometimes it's the technology itself that's problematic. So what do you make of those kinds of arguments and both of those positions? Well, we uh, believe that value neutrality of technology is a myth. I mean, that you can say, give so many examples that show that that is just not true, but that technology is always value laden to some extent. Um, technologies the way they are designed, so here that the design phase also becomes very important, um, it invites certain uses and inhibits others, like certain behaviors. So it's not, and, and social media perhaps is one example. So for instance, social media platforms invite certain forms of communication and certain communication styles. It's really something that encourages simplifying your messages, making them much shorter. There are often like explicit constraints on how long a video might be or how long a text might be, for instance. So it's not that users are completely free to communicate however they want on a social media platform. Also, I can give you other examples of how technologies and also very simple artifacts embody values. So take a simple speed bump. You could say that embodies the value of safety, right? A speed bump make you, makes the car slow down. And that is not, that is not value neutral, right? Or if you think of um, ultrasound technology, so um, ultrasound technology doesn't provide like a neutral window window to the womb, so now you can basically see what's in the in the womb, but it actually um, helps to constitute the fetus in the womb both as a person and as a patient, and that it creates new obligations and it creates a complete new relationship between becoming parents and that that a baby. And so um, value-sensitive design approaches depart from this insight that technology is never completely neutral. It's always value-laden. And therefore, we should try to influence like what values it sort of enhances and what values it might hinder and really incorporate certain values um, in the design from the beginning. And this relates to this aspect that Ibo mentioned of forward-looking responsibility. Because we know that it can have certain effects and that the, how it is designed is so important, we should try to anticipate that. How will it mediate human perception and action? What disruptive effects might it have? And then already from the beginning, as far as possible, um, shape it. Mm -hmm. And so one last question, and I, I guess that as we went through the technologies you explore in the book, we've already made these points several times over, but just to guess, I guess, re-emphasize or stress it again, 
uh, is all social disruption necessarily bad? I mean, and I'm asking you that because, of course, I guess it's safe to say that most of the time when people use the term disruption, the, uh, it has a negative connotation to it, right? No, that's definitely true, but we certainly believe that it can also be good. And I think we already mentioned some examples earlier, for instance, regarding social media, that it can also be an instrument of empowerment, that more voices are being heard, and there can are many other examples. So in general, you can say, if certain old, deeply entrenched structures are being disruptors, which we think are actually unfair and, and serve to just uh, maintain, um, for instance, certain unjust practices, then a disruption is positive because it opens room for change, for positive change. So you might think in this way about the whole discussion of, of parenting practices and gender roles. You might say here, we have certain structures like deeply uh, entrenched and it's very hard to, to break them up and, 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 and have change here. And whenever disruption enables us to, to do things differently, to see new possibilities, to think differently, then disruption can be conducive to positive change. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, uh, I fully agree with Julia here, uh, but there might also be some, you know, there, there might be some sort of uh, specificities about disruption that might be relevant from an ethical point of view. So, for instance, to be in a state of social disruption such that we don't really know to how we should conceptualize a certain value or some key concept, right? That in itself might be somewhat problematic, right? So, so there might often be the kinds of constellations where we think that social disruption is something to be overcome, right? So ultimately it might be a force for the good or, 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 or a, force, a force for the worse, right? And there, but we really have to think what are the kind of unjust structures that we need to overcome? Or for instance, concepts that have been very much entrenched in our, our, our conceptual system, but that are actually not very sort of helpful or emancipatory or whatever kind of value you want to achieve, right? But then there's also the being in the state of social disruption, which raises its own sort of set of issues. And I think these are often, they, they might be somewhat biased towards the negative, right? Because this being in a state of uncertainty, that can be problematic. Not necessarily, but it can be. Mm -hmm. So uh, is there anything else you would like to add as a final message, perhaps some uh, points that you'd like to people to take home when it comes to this book or should we end on that note maybe just on the discussion about so i think there might be instances in which social disruption or or disruption is even needed uh, <laughs> so i think the particular example many people would think of is, is, is climate change. Without some form of social disruption, we're probably not going to address uh, 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 the climate uh, uh, problem. Uh, and uh, I agree with you, Woon, that there's something maybe inherently problematic about being uncertain, but it is also, I think it is also, and I'm saying this more as a philosopher, <laughs> I like the state of being uh, uncertain because it's, makes you ask questions that maybe otherwise doesn't, doesn't get asked. So for me, there's also something positive about being uncertain or being uncertain about concepts because it forces you to take the things that are often taken for granted to see they may be not so obvious as they might seem. But this is typically, I think, the attitude of a, of a philosopher. <laughs>
Okay, great. So the book is again, Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies and Introduction. I'm leaving a link to it in the description of the interview. And by the way, uh, let's start with Dr. Obster. Perhaps where can people find you on the internet? Um, I guess, I mean, I have my own website, johnobster.com. I also have a, a, a university webpage, and I think that links to a project that I'm currently working on. So yeah, just Google Jeroen Obster and it should be easy. And Dr. Erman, what about you? Yeah, if you go to the website of the University of Twente, then you find my profile page. And Dr. Van der Poel? Yeah, basically uh, the same. You can go to the university. I guess I have not a very common name, Ivo. So if you Google Ivo van der Poel, you probably uh, find relevant information. <laughs> Okay, great. So I am adding those links to the description as well. And uh, thank you all so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. And also please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perargo Larson, Jerry Muller, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf, Alex, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Kavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrew, Francis Forti, Agnunes, Fergal Kossen, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Labyrinth, John Nyars, Tantanti, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, John Weyre, Tom Hamel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazewski, Nelek Bakka, Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, George Stephanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles de Moray, Alex Shaw, Maury Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Erringbon, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Zigoren, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dovner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowley, Kate Van Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson, Mike Lavigne, and Dios Necht. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegden, Bernard Unikir, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, Bogdan Canivets and Rosie. Thank you for all.